And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. So what is a SPAC? We've heard all about SPACs, S-P-A-C. I'm not sure everybody knows exactly what that is, what that means, and how that affects startups in general. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. And before we get too far into that, I want to remind you that today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. With me today, I've got John Bosch. And John is the a founder and attorney at the Davis Bosch Analytics Group. Now, He's going to attempt to tell you and tell me and discuss with me everything about SPACs. I just like saying SPAC. Now, before I have to say SPAC again, John, welcome to Startup Hustle. Hi, how are you doing this morning? Good, good. And, you know, before we get too far into this, let's go ahead and uh, get a little bit of your backstory as a founder and attorney at the Davis Bosch Analytics Group. Yeah, I'm a... Uh... From I'm licensed in Kansas and Missouri. I'm a business and real estate attorney, and I enjoy the stock market and investing. I know a lot about it, and I like sharing that as an educator to the public. Yeah, so let's just dive right in here. So, you know, SPAC, S-P-A-C, it's a, it's a special purpose acquisition company. Yeah, well, what is that? What does that mean? Well, it's it's a little bit different than our traditional methods of coming to market, which are your... Uh, initial public offering and direct offering. Uh, SPAC is a company created specifically to raise money, which will then be used to purchase an interest in an existing company that is already a running, though sometimes private business. So the you know SPAC's a company with no commercial operations, uh, formed strictly to raise capital and make it easier to invest in companies. Now I, I key the the term easier. You know, traditionally getting mainstream money, when I say mainstream money, we're talking about like money that you can uh, buy with your 401k, that you can get on Robinhood or Schwab or any of these places. That money traditionally prior to SPACs had a difficult way, had a difficult time finding its way to startup founders. So, uh, you know, as uh, the, the concept of the SPAC is changing that. And it's also been kind of a topsy-turvy ride for a lot of SPACs. Um, you know, it, it, why is that? Well, yeah, when we first started this conversation, it was, it was a very hot method of coming to market. Uh, that's cooled a little bit because the SEC has put some new rules in about how the warrants are treated. And it's basically kind of put a yellow light. Uh, in front of the whole thing. But, you know, our traditional IPO process, part of the reason it's challenging is, is that there's usually a run up to market through several rounds 
of roadshows uh, in which the stock can be dramatically bid up. So we saw Airbnb and DoorDash premiere well above $150 uh, last year. Well, SPACs are always uh, $10 a share, at least to start. Though until it's decided to merge with another company, you don't really know what you're getting. And also, despite that per share value, the proportion of the company that the SPAC holders will own is often small and indeterminate at the time of the SPAC and can be less than 10% uh, percent of the equity in the entire company because we're fairly getting in fairly late to the game where there's already going to be major participants and funders who have funded it sometimes decades ago. And many of these companies are not new. Uh, they're just new to the public market. Now, we talked about, you mentioned when we first started this conversation, for those of you listening, we actually recorded this episode a couple months ago and had some technical problems with the audio, which has happened only a few times in, in hundreds and hundreds of episodes. So thank you for coming back to talk to me about that. But as you mentioned, this, the market for SPACs had ch has changed in just two or three months. It went from being super hot to cooling. And, you know, I would imagine that some of that, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because you know, SPACs are often referred to as blank check companies. And, you know, I, I need you to explain that to me a little better. Why exactly is a SPAC a quote blank check? Um, well, when it's created, you know, there'll be a dollar figure stated about how much they intend to raise. The ones I've seen were between a hundred million um, and a billion dollars. But the reason it's a blank check is, is that they can state a particular target. They might say, hey, we want a space exploration company or we want uh, to buy a fitness company or some kind of hot, something out of a hot sector, but they, there are only so many particular targets and some of them may not want to enter the market using that SPAC form for a variety of reasons. So it's a blank check in that the creators of the pool uh, you know, state what their intention is, but at the time they create it, they have not got a firm target and it's also all subject to a vote by the holders of the SPAC units or shares whether they're going to approve that particular merger or not so um you know that blank blank check idea is is that they can they can in theory put the money to uh any company they want though that's still all subject to the kind of democratic aspects of of regular companies so there's going to be a vote on that acquisition and usually when it succeeds that's a big uh, pop uh, when you when you buy a SPAC, you're hoping that that SPAC promoter already has a stable of potential target companies and has already begun those conversations in earnest and in secret. Uh, but whether those actually pan out and and are successfully voted on is kind of a different story. So when it when it comes to yeah, you know, and once again, investors in a SPAC can range from well-known private equity funds to the general public, and you see SPACs uh, for sale, kind of like, is it fair to say, kind of like you could buy a mutual fund? Um, I mean, you can basically get your money into it in the same shapes and forms, right? Right, and and you know, I think that that convenience of typing in one ticker symbol and being able to directly buy something is. Something's something people are looking for in everything in crypto, uh, but but you know differently than an ETF, which is actually going to hold a bundle of either you know paper certificates like gold proxies or oil proxies, or it's going to hold actual stocks. All this holds is cash, and so um, 
you know, until until that vote is successful. It may even elect to pick a completely different type of company than you believed you were originally investing in or that the promoter was was targeting. And so some of those challenges um, are kind of interesting. You know, Warren Buffett says, if you wouldn't own it for 15 years, why own it for 15 minutes? Well, you don't even know what you bought except for a ticket on the ride with that particular um, promoter. And so in that case, uh, you know, that thinking would argue for rarely or never buying them above $12 and uh, waiting for them to merge so that you can actually be certain what you've purchased and what you've invested in. Now, in regards to something like a mutual fund, you could say the same thing. Like you don't necessarily know what you've purchased. I mean, I, I get, technically you do, but I mean, if you look at, oh, I don't know, just Vanguard's index 500 and that's probably not even a real thing but you know when you look at that you know that there you know yeah it sounds close enough right so uh, so you know you've purchased uh, probably S&P 500 companies that are in there but you don't know at what volume or what percentage or whatever and that stuff's pretty fluid and changing most of the time i mean this the, but this is as much different because those companies are S&P 500 companies where the SPAC companies are buying, well, they're investing in companies that have founders that, that may have been on this show at some point, you know, <laughs> right. is, is that the, is, I mean, is that the big difference? Well, you know, I think that in a, in a varied product like an ETF, you know, you can assume that some proportion of that's going to be invested in Google, Apple, Microsoft, et cetera, which we can accept or probably never or not going to go to zero or lose 90% of their value. Um, they're also companies who have decades of track record and full disclosure, so there's really no allegation that they're lying or playing funny games with their accounting uh, because they're the most successful open companies uh, out there, and that's why they merit their very, very high valuations. On the other hand, uh, with a SPAC, you know, several of them have been accused of uh, basically lying about their initial prospects and some of their successes pre-market. Uh, some of them, uh, one claimed last year that it would have enough money from the SPAC to uh, fund 18 months of operations and begin vehicle production and not 13 months later, it said that they're completely out of money and need more. And so those kinds of assertions that people make in the market aren't necessarily you know, fraudulent, they're not necessarily wrongful when made. But they're also a matter of trust is, is that you're literally going to find somebody that says this is plenty of money to accomplish our goal. And then 12 months later, turn around and say, no, it's not. I want to take another dip at that bucket. So that that's not going to happen with Google and Apple and, and companies like that. They have so much money that they don't need to issue stock. They don't need to raise money other than by selling their products. And so I, I think there's kind of a dramatic difference and we're not just talking about quality, but also about uh, proof of success and what we know versus what we don't know is, is that Google has little left to prove. So does Amazon. Sure. And that's why they're $2,500 a share that, that, you know, a company like this, the chances of it eventually going to a dollar are very much higher than that. Not 1%, but say 20 or 30% in some cases years. So as this, as the, with the SPAC and all of the companies and equity and everything that it purchases, is it is it the goal of the SPAC 
to guide those companies individually into an IPO or to just keep all of them as uh, a portion of a, a well, I and I would imagine on some levels, they might not even be able to control some of that because they might only be buying a few percentage of points of it here or there. Right. I mean, what's the, what's the whole goal of the SPAC? Is it just to invest in non-conventional uh, companies and hope that they do well, uh, or I mean, I mean, I guess SoftBank kind of does that. Uh, yeah, and SoftBank has several SPACs, though they've kind of failed to launch in the last uh, last few months, like we were talking about. But but I, you know, I think that you know that may be kind of the push pull that companies that are already profitable and are already have a ton of revenue, like Airbnb or Rope are probably going to opt for a different route, knowing that they can get a more robust valuation and a higher value for share, and even maybe a, a nicer reception by the market. And I think that goes into what we were talking about. Some of these other companies may be either so speculative or kind of hiding the ball about whether they'll ever be able to make money or compete, um, that, that that may appeal to them in coming to market as a SPAC because there just isn't as much hype, there isn't as much investigation or as much reporting um, until they come to market. To your other part of your question, uh, yeah, it's about it's a, about the money for sure, and in many cases to fund the technology, for example, uh, QuantumScape is a, as a former SPAC trying up an all-new battery technology. They got several hundred million dollars from Volkswagen some years ago, some hundred million or more from the SPAC, and then have gone back to the market yet again asking for more money, basically explaining to anyone who would invest that that this is going to be expensive to get there and it may never happen. Um, that That is a different type of company than one like we're saying Airbnb Roblox, who already is starting to dominate a new area that they created that's kind of different. And it's a different part of the business evolution. Mo many of these SPACs are fairly early on, despite not necessarily being new companies. Yeah, I think a decent example, like you, you look, you talked about, you know, hype and investigation and all that different stuff and the scrutiny that comes under public eyes. And you look at a company like WeWork, who, you know, uh, upon getting a lot of private investment, uh, managed to it, it slide down the uh, slide down the aisle, warts and all, on its way to winning a beauty crown. And then all of a sudden, as you know, the IPO came around, people start giving it a much closer look. They're saying, "Wait, this is grossly overvalued." They had to produce. And well, anytime you want to go public, it's exactly that. You're going public. You are going to show warts and all to everyone that might be looking at you and that that scrutiny in many ways um it was it was crowdsourced uh, so many different mm -hmm. people looking at so many different things and saying how the hell is this a technology company uh right. why is it getting it why is it getting a 10x multiple um and, well, and like you're suggesting that fall apart yeah. that invited several very incisive articles from the mm -hmm. new york times and other outlets yes. that really looked into what was happening and that's the yep. difference between the man behind the curtain and the emperor having no clothes is, is that we have to test Mr. Newman and Mr. Masayoshi-san about their honesty about what we're genuinely uh, being sold. And, and, you know, I think that right. you're making, making a great example 
of I think most people in the real estate industry understand that being a sub landlord for a sub landlord is a very troublesome economic proposition from the very front. Now, that's not necessarily radically different than what I said about QuantumScape, where they're saying, hey, everybody knows batteries, but we're going to do that an all new way. But I think that that's the role of, of individual investors is to make some kind of value judgment or value proposition about something doesn't sound right here. And we work, even though, uh, you know, it kind of fell into the state, it has respacked with a non-SoftBank SPAC from what I've most recently heard. So they're t continuing to try to sell that proposition and that concept to somebody. And I think that all stocks are are kind of about that. And same with crypto. There's a specific audience that this is being marketed to. And um, it can be a mix. You know, Vanguard owns millions of shares of Google and they own uh, tens of thousands of some of these SPACs because they have their fingers in everything and they want a chance for growth and for stability. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of those elements in there. So should SPACs, do you think in general, do you think a SPAC should just be considered by nature a remarkably volatile or, uh, or risky investment just based on the fact of the companies that they're investing in are, well, I mean, here's the thing. If you look at a SPAC like you would look at like a private VC fund or something like mm -hmm. that, I mean, those guys will tell you they're expecting nine out of 10 of their investments to flop. Now, if you if you if you show if you show up to your pitch meeting to your newfound investors and often say, hey, 90 percent of the time we're going to we're going to fall flat on our face. Um, that's not always going to impress people. Some people might get mm -hmm. it because they're going to ask, well, what about the 10 percent of the time that we're right? Is it that big mm -hmm. that it that it overwhelms the the 90 percent of failure to the point that we don't even care? But I mean, overall, is just the as is that kind of risk and volatility assumed with SPACs. Um, you know, I, I think based on the other factors, the lower barriers to entry and the lower amount of information that you're going to have, um, that they are probably attracting that, that kind of company. And, um, you know, I, I mean, another example is Richard Branson's uh, Virgin Galactic. That's a company that's been around for 15 years and recently spacked or 20 years, uh, it's about to take its its first flight. I'd say space tourism is pretty speculative. I mean, it's new, it's completely unproven, it's obviously gonna be dangerous and costly. And so in that case, it, it is a form of self-selection. And, um, you know, that's leading to volatility. It's thrown that one around from between 10 and 50 to $60 and, and everywhere in between over the last year, all without a flight yet. And that's about to come, but see, that's always been, that's been on the horizon only 18 months away for the last 10 years. And so, um, you know, I think it is kind of a buyer beware and a lot of people are chasing some of those incredible moves. I mean, many of them have gone from 10 up into the 50 to a hundred range, but briefly, and that goes to that weighing machine versus voting machine concept of, of, you know, the voting machine can push it to incredible extremes in short periods of time, but the weighing machine part over time is just not going to assign insane valuations to companies that haven't shown up what they are going to do. And then conversely, once they show you the product and there's the doubt is removed, the price will already be so high that, that then you got to look at it from the opposite point of view of why didn't I get in early? 
and, and those tensions exist everywhere in markets. With me today, I've got John Bosch. John's a founder and an attorney at the Davis Bosch Analytics Group. We're talking all about SPACs and what they are. Uh, it's you know kind of trying to define some of that. I think that um, if I probably went out and asked a lot of, of peers or people that are in the startup community, you say, hey, have you ever heard of a SPAC? I think most people will say yes. If you say, okay, what is one? I think most people would then look at you like a dog that just saw a card trick. Um, <laughs> you know, so uh, this stuff is often complex, but exists for a reason. Speaking of existing for a reason, today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, hoping to help you build a software team quickly and affordably so you can guide your startup and your company to a SPAC. So let's, you know, I want to talk about some of the advantages and why these, why these exist. I mean, obviously, one of the first advantages is this can be an attractive option for owners of a small company, which are used to getting funds through private equity sources. Like the SPAC mm -hmm. is, a, is a different angle. It's a different pool. And obviously, in many cases, it's a big bank. And I don't mean mm -hmm. like an actual bank that owns the SPAC. It's just a big ass bank account <laughs> that can write big checks. Um, you know, I, I've talked to so many people about raising money. It's a hot topic on on this podcast as well as Startup Hustle TV. If you want to watch that, go to YouTube and just search Startup Hustle. Uh, but, you know, this is the, I think SPACs and anything. So SPACs is one mechanism. You have other things like you now see uh, crowd, you know, angel investing and crowdfunding that's coming in to, you know, like, uh, you know, 10 years ago, you could go to Indiegogo or crowd or Kickstarter or those things. And you could, uh, you know, basically buy a product before it had even been made. And now you're seeing the ability for founders to raise money through companies like OurCrowd.com. And that's another sponsor of our show. Thank you. Thank you to OurCrowd. But, uh, you know, all these different ways are, are channeling money to private companies now. Um, I mean, what are some of the other advantages of SPACs when it comes to founders in general? Um, well, kind of like you hinted at, you know, there's there's a lot of money out there in Series D funding and angel investing. And if you can find those things, they often come with a lot less control uh, over you know, from, from the contributor of, of what, where the money's going to be spent. Um, and then, but you do get into the accredited investor idea and there's also some liability behind that where the stock market itself is a barrier between you and having to figure out whether your investment group knows or controls anything. And then that's the second part is, is, is that they can assure the early investors in these companies that they'll maintain voting rights and control over the company despite the fact that the the SPAC comes in many of them when you vote you also are going to vote on you know that board and their compensation and their overall plan for the merger so you're initially giving them a blessing to run the company until some other uh, set of decisions have been made so um, you know kind of like we talked about last time I'm not certain if most of you of your listeners you know, um, you know, one example about Chamath, uh, which is one of the characters we've talked about, is he's a billionaire that's formally associated with some of the big companies like Facebook, that when he sets up 10, you know, multi-hundred million dollar SPACs, a lot of his friends are going to have potential places to put that, um, where when we get to that, you know, nosebleed 
uh, eight and nine figure valuation level, we're talking about amounts of money that most people can't um, deploy, much less collect. And so, you know, I think that that the sizing of it is set for a certain world of people, you know, kind of new billionaires of which there are very many in this last era since 2008, that, that it, it gives them a lot of flexibility. And I, I think, you know, one thing we, we didn't touch on earlier is, is that there's, it's also people are demanding a lot more choice and they want new access to new companies in the market because the existing things are so highly valued and merged together that that's what's creating all the demand for the, these new interests and in speculative companies. Um, what's amazing now is it almost seems like they've run out of targets after searching for a year or a year and a half that most of the good stuff has already been uh, acquired. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, that's actually a, a really good point because you're talking about, well, that's why I said big bank, you know, like these are big bank accounts, like a billion dollars uh, sounds like a lot of it in some situations is in just an un, inconceivable amount of money. Like you don't even realize how much money that is. Right. And then in some, in some cases it's a drop in a bucket mm -hmm. and, when you're talking about early stage companies now, I, you know, according to the notes it's uh, that I've got here, it says that selling, selling to a spec can add up to 20% to your sale price compared to a typical private equity deal. Are you aware of that? Um, well, you know, I think that, that it depends on, you know, using it as a pitch to the person using it, you know, valuation is, is a crazy concept because you 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 know to give that, it, give often, that it often has no basis well right and and like you're saying well 20 percent. so you know comparing ten dollars versus twelve dollars about doing it some other way you know we got to refer back to airbnb and those other ones i talked about where they said hey it's going to come out at 28 hey it's going to come out at 56 hey it's going to come out at 90 and before we knew it it actually came out at like 168 so it was five times all the estimates based on the kind of derivation that you and I might sit down and do right here of saying, well, you know, what do you think Airbnb is worth? Well, it's worth 50% more if we IPO now in January 2020. That was 30 bucks. So by simply waiting a year and a half, they got something like four times more money than they thought they would that, that for to, to try to estimate anything about such an unpredictable world, I think is kind of hard. And we also can't be certain that they would have gotten such a valuation in a SPAC type of format. I, I, I don't think they, they could have built up to that. Then, then there's one other element of in all of the different forms, they can't just simply monetize. So if the stock rockets to $100, they're not allowed to dump um, their entire stake uh, just at that moment to make that money. And we're seeing that with the meme stocks and things like that too, is, is that they have many more restrictions than a casual or retail holder would. And so they can't take advantage of it in the same way uh, as, as you or I could. So then they just sit there and flail and watch the stock price go all over the road and the valuation of the company go all over the road where they're still just trying to make a product. So month to month, day to day, things are not changing uh, that rapidly. And uh, so I think those valuation conceptions i mean I, I would really say that that if you have a strong company that already has revenue you're going to make a lot more money just by going ipo because we've seen that happen a ton in the last two years yeah and that's a that's a remarkably complex 
um, and lengthy process that, and expensive too, you know, like, I mean, you have to, you got to meet some pretty serious requirements uh, to hit a public exchange. You got to meet a whole lot. Of, there's a whole lot to go through. And Right. Um, and even just yeah, creating I mean, those 10Qs and 10Ks, you literally have an entire accounting department, an entire accounting department, 50 people, six figures each with benefits, you know, and, and that many companies can't do that, much less would, would want to. So uh, there are a lot of challenges in that that piece of it and that's that's why those are for basically what are we saying 10 figure billion dollar companies are bigger um and if you're smaller than that you know you're really you might only be on the pink sheets these days um, right now but those smaller companies can still become part of a SPAC though uh, like, yeah there's yeah i mean so, i don't so so here, here's the question then so if, if when you, all right when you if you uh, let's say that now do these SPACs are just acquiring any percentage of a company they're investing in it could be anything from 0.01% to the whole damn company right mm -hmm. okay so now is is the and i we we touched on this earlier now does if the SPAC acquires an entire company like if it's a full acquisition or at least a controlling interest yeah, do they do, are, are there is their goal to move that company to another company? Is there yes, is it their goal to move it to another company? Well, the the promoter for example can sell his interest almost right away. Uh so he gets a portion of the company um fairly quickly and and can turn around and sell that. Is it their goal to to convert it into either cash or other companies or then to resell that company? Well, typically we don't think of premieres as being like that. You know, I think LinkedIn was one of those rare ones that was, you know, IPO'd, had a nice valuation, was bought within a couple years of hitting the market by Microsoft or one of the other big, big companies. Um, that that's actually fairly rare because the dynamic of things, you know, between creation and merger uh, is, is pretty dynamic. So I think you'd see, you know, ideally that there would be a lifetime uh, uh, you know, for those, and they also usually have a window for success. You know, the QuantumScape one I mentioned says, uh, you know, product on the market by 2027. Uh, Richard Branson's uh, Virgin Galactic says revenue flights by 2022, 2023. So they'll already have kind of a five to 10 year layout of what they intend to try to do. Um, and that may have always been the schedule. But I think that when you SPAC it, you know, it's just like the same idea as the IPO. You're going to get a huge amount of money. So you better know what you intended to do with that money. And, you know, some some have an easy choice of that, like Tesla. OK, new factories expand, whereas some companies have have fairly limited things that they can do with the money, like more buybacks or, you know, so that I think the decision process is going to be highly dependent on where your company is in the business maturity cycle. So let's flip the the conversation around now. And we've been talking about, you know, a lot of the things that would make a founder or a startup or a small company be interested in having a SPAC invest in them. Let's flip it around and be investors in a SPAC real quick. So, you know, obviously we, we discussed, I alluded to the uh, vol potential volatility and risk just because early stage companies Investing in any early stage company is a risky proposition. And the very first thing when it comes to like 
you know, there's risks and with that, there's potential benefits and investing in anything, whether you're doing it directly into a company or through a SPAC. I think the one thing that's pretty obvious is that it's going to be a longer play. Um, in most mm-hmm. cases, it's not usually a quick, you're not, you don't, I, I, it's not a flip. Uh, what are some of the other things when it comes to like the, you know, just, I know we've mentioned a few of them, but maybe we can summarize a little bit. Like you don't know what you're getting in some situations. Right. Um, so not only have they not proven themselves, but for a lot of things, there can just be very little factual information at all. And conversations like the one we're having may be, you know, close to the most direct objective information that you can actually get about a company like that simply because it either doesn't exist or everybody is is basically touting and talking their book and they're saying well the reason i'm talking x up is because i own thousands and thousands of shares of it which is very common uh in the internet age so you know i think that that finding semi-disinterested commentary that tries to take a very honest view of what those companies are doing is hard to find and to go back to our fang examples of really big companies i mean they publish how many phones they sell they publish how many cars they sell and they tell you what the margin is on each one so if you're an analyst you can sit there and within some you know margin of error you can figure out exactly how much money they're making dollar for dollar it is not even a guess because they've already given you by law, they've already given you the tools you need to estimate what that range is. With some of these other companies, there may be two or three articles, two or three interviews, and then dozens of robot-produced, you know, commentaries on the internet that don't give you any more than, you know, what's already occurred. And and it, it it's surprising that you can have a ten billion dollar company about which an educated layperson could maybe write two or three paragraphs. I mean, that's it, because that's all the information that's out there, unless you're either going to pay for it or do that research yourself. And uh, then you go from the smallest to the largest, you know, those are, that's also an information curve. And so a lot of this is about information brokering and information gathering uh, that every day, once you have that on your radar, you can go out and try to find more and more about it and Reddit and there's other communities out there seeking alpha online where there are other people who want to know and and where the information is relatively free now whether it's correct or unbiased is a completely different matter but you know that's kind of the fun of it is you're gleaning for these pebbles of real information everywhere so you, you turn yourself into an internet sleuth of sorts. Now, everything you mentioned, uh, and we we alluded to this earlier as well, is is ripe for fraud or misuse or abuse. Um, you know, just meaning like the well, the, what was the what what is the name of the electric car company you were mentioning? I was drawing, I I, I couldn't come up with it right offhand. Oh, oh, well, I, I might have alluded to several, and there are several that are SPACs. They don't make there was cars. There was one that the CEO, the CFO, a whole bunch of people just quit. After. Oh, oh uh, I think I was thinking of Lordstown Motors, which is also partially yes. owned by, uh, by Workhorse. Yeah. So that's Ride Workhorse. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it basically, it did going concern, which is, which is like an alert that they're required to put on their public disclosure saying, hey, we're running out of cash. This not only just a few years after getting that new factory in Ohio and getting a huge, you know, incentive to do it and all the other stuff. I'm sure all that that's happened in the past, 
uh, then we got to think about what's going going in the future. Um, and I think we all know it's expensive to run a business and it takes a lot of time to run it to get things going, uh, that that takes millions of dollars to get you there before your first dollar of revenue, your first product. Yeah, and a lot of these companies are, are well, I mean, you look at Lordstown or you look at even just any small startup. I mean, they are they are essentially built block by block, which each block is a new round of funding. So if they don't get that next block, the other ones begin to crumble. And that's where that, that you know, when I say fraud, abuse, or misuse, because the scrutiny and the requirements for private companies, well, I own a private company. I mean, we do $10 million a year in revenue. I don't have to report shit except <laughs> for to the IRS at the end of the year for taxes, you know? Right. And, and, and with Sarbanes-Oxley, when you sign on that line, you're signing that you're taking civil and some criminal liability for what happened within your company, which which does go against that kind of freewheeling spirit of like, I'm going to do what I want and I try to follow the law as I can, that you're signing off on that everything you're putting out in the public uh, has been well investigated and is attempted to be right. truthful, you know, and and the, the private companies don't have to necessarily worry about that control, et cetera. Yeah. And that's, I mean, and that's, uh, well, ever since the history of markets, people have been bullshitting markets. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I was just, uh, you know, what, I love watching the history channel and they recently had, had a three-part series about the Titans that made America and JP Morgan being one of them. And, you know, the, all of the, all of the misuse and abuse that was occurring in and around the stock market, both before and, after and during what is no, now known as the Great Depression, but you know, talking about, and that's where a lot of this regulatory stuff came from. Because, uh, well, we'll go. Let's go back to the WeWork example. Now, while Adam Newman didn't get what he wanted when it came to, to WeWork, I'm pretty sure the dude's a billionaire or close to it. Um, so, on some levels, uh, I've always I've always joked and said that money is a soft pillow, meaning when people have it, they sleep better at night. Um, and oftentimes that washes that, that, uh, good rest, uh, occurs regardless of how they got the money that's helping them sleep at night. So, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's, you can look at that someone like that, that was outed partially disgraced on some levels and then pushed out of his own company. But, uh, does an $800 million golden parachute, uh, help you to that nice soft landing where quite honestly, you just don't give a shit. Um, about all the rest of it. I'm pretty sure for $800 million, you can go buy an island somewhere and be left alone for the rest of your life if you really want to. Uh, but that's that's where people manipulate stuff. And, you know, like like I said, it's going to happen. So, all right. Uh, as, we round, as we come up on the Founders Freestyle, and that's how I end my episodes of Startup Hustle, I say my episodes. I'm not the only host of the show, folks. Make sure to tune in on Tuesdays. Join Andrew Morgans, the CEO and founder of Marknology, as he talks all about e-commerce and Amazon. Tune in on Thursdays and join Lauren Conaway, the founder of Innovate Her. Lauren talks about too many things for me to get into. Great shows on Tuesdays and Thursdays. If you haven't had enough of the podcast, head on over to YouTube. Check out the video series that we launched earlier this year on all kinds of subjects, all kinds of things. We're just working hard to try to help you 
make your business better. Now, for today's Founders Freestyle, I know you're the founder of Davis Bosch Analytics Group, but let's give some advice to founders that might want to back their truck up to the SPAC wagon. Um, what's the best way to determine, uh, in your opinion, if, uh, uh, if, if, a, if your company is potentially eligible for a SPAC or how to even get ready for it? I don't know. What's the best advice if we want to back up to the SPAC wagon? Well, I definitely think you should should look at the kinds of companies that have already succeeded in that space and has, have already moved through it. And also whether the size of your company uh, is, is appropriate to that you know, range that we talked about, maybe if it's a little bit smaller, the SPAC structure is, is too complex and too large for you. If it's bigger than that, it can take on the burdens of being an IPO. Um, but I think a lot of it is just an education like you and I have been pushing um, about knowing about all these potential funding types. There's more than there ever have been before. There's more potential pitfalls. And then it's just a self-education about which one's right for you. Yeah, and I agree. I think uh, much like the same advice I'd give if you were going to line up with a private equity firm, I mean, you need to have your shit together. You need to have your books together. You need to have all your stuff together. And then, uh, you know, you said one thing a couple of times during the show that that really hit home. What are you going to do with the money? Um, I see a lot. I've seen a lot of people's pitches and a lot of people's presentations and they're, you know, out to raise five million dollars and then they're really not explaining what they're going to do with $5 million. Well, and that's part yeah. of having a yeah. solid business plan. And, and also when you go to market, it can't just be a grab for the honeypot. You know, you have to have a very clear idea of what you were going to do with the money in the first place and the product you intend to create. Yeah. You can't just show up and say, we want $5 million because or 10 million or 25 or 50, because we want it and we think we'll need it down the road. I mean, people that, that write those kind of checks want to know what you're going to do with it. And they want to, and they want to know that you can handle it. Um, and I think when you're preparing to do something like a SPAC is, is at a higher level than getting a hundred thousand dollar check from your corner VC store. Um, just meaning like, yeah. And especially when it comes to angel investment, you know, like we don't even have investors in full scale. We had what we call lenders, because we created our own venture debt. Um, that was probably the easiest path to us putting damn near a million dollars in the bank a couple years ago, because the people that wrote checks were people that knew us. They didn't, it didn't require a whole lot of crap that went with it. So we were, we were pretty happy. And that was, that was a completely different level where on the flip side of that, you know, with Matt Watson, my business partner, full scale recently, uh, his company Stackify was acquired. That was a six month excruciating process that he went through. My bet would be in most cases, a SPAC is going to be equal to or greater than that when it comes to all of the hoops and stuff you're going to jump through. So, hey, you know, John, I appreciate you coming back and helping me redefine uh, what a SPAC is and chat about it. And like I said, the market's changed. Maybe we'll bring you back in six months and see exactly what's going on with it then. So I'm going to go ahead and sign off and get back to getting my company SPAC worthy. I'll see you next time. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.